morning, everyone. I'd like to break open this passage from the Gospel of Matthew by doing a little visual demonstration. I'd invite you to play along. Imagine, if you will, that this is the most beautiful painting you have ever seen in your life. Do I hear some oohs? Do I hear some ahs? Thanks for playing. Very cooperative. What is the most beautiful painting we could possibly imagine? Another way of saying it is, what is the crown of creation? We are. Jesus says, haven't you read that in the beginning, God made them male and female? This is a painting of man and woman, male and female, just as God created us to be in the beginning. When we were naked and felt no shame. And it is the most beautiful painting we can possibly imagine. This, in fact, is not only a biological reality our creation as male and female. Our creation as male and female is a theological reality. Our bodies themselves are theological. Our bodies themselves tell God's story. How so? That's what I hope to unfold in the next half hour. How do our bodies tell God's story? What went wrong and how does Christ restore it? We know in our world today, there is a lot of sexual confusion. Fill out a personal profile on Facebook, and you will be given over 50 gender options. There was a complaint from the public that that wasn't enough. And so Facebook added a customize button you can now customize your own sexual identity. And I believe Christ's words that we read here this morning, this time from Matthew's gospel, cut through all of this confusion like a hot knife through butter. Haven't you read that in the beginning, God made them male and female? Everything else is a distortion of that original, beautiful, wonderful plan of God. But why did it become so distorted? I want you to think for a moment with the mind of the enemy. What do we have that the angels don't have? Shout it out. Bodies, bodies. We read in scripture that Lucifer fell out of envy. And envy arises when we don't have something that somebody else has and we want it. But envy is not simply jealousy. Jealousy says, oh, I wish I had that and I don't have it. Envy says, I wish I had that, I don't have it, and I don't want the person who has it to have it. That's envy. Lucifer and his fallen angels hate 
hate, hate with all their diabolical fury our creation as male and female. Why? I want to propose to you that this painting is the fundamental icon God has given us to reveal to us in this physical world who he is and who we are and how we are to live and what our ultimate destiny is. I want to propose to you that from beginning to end, the Bible tells a story about this painting. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them, and he said, be fertile, be fertile, be fertile, be fruitful and multiply. I want to I throw something out to you here, and I want you to tell me if in today's world, if this is a controversial statement, okay? Eyes are foreseeing. Imagine I were on the Ellen show, and I said to Ellen, Ellen, eyes are foreseeing. Would there be any controversy there? What if I were to say, ears are for hearing? Any controversy there? Lungs are for breathing. Any controversy there? No, see, there is an intelligibility to our bodies. We can look at our bodies, we can study our bodies, and we can reason can tell us what our bodies are for, and more specifically, what certain parts of our bodies are for. And this shouldn't be controversial, but let me throw this one out. Genitals are for generating. Why, why in our world today is that all of a sudden a controversial statement? Genitals are for generating. And this is where we get the word gender has the same root, gender, genitals, generous, generate. God's love is generous. It generates. God has revealed himself not only as love, but also as father. Because his love is a life-giving love. And it is in this image that we are made as male and female. We are made in the image of a generous, generating love. And that love is called God. That love is called Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. From all eternity, God is this eternal exchange of generous, generating, life-giving love. And it's as if the Trinity is having a conversation amongst themselves when we read in Genesis, let us Make man in our image. Already God is referring to himself in the plural. Although it wouldn't be until the incarnation that Christ would reveal God is a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's right there in a kind of foreshadowing right in the first chapter of Genesis. Let us make man in our image. It's as if the trinity is having a conversation amongst themselves. And they say, let's make a creature that is capable of participating with us in this generous, generating love. Male and female, he created them and he blessed them and he said, be fertile. We catch here a glimpse in that life-giving love of man and woman. We catch a glimpse of the Trinity because in the normal course of events, the union of the two 
leads us to a third. Of course, God himself is not sexual. God is pure spirit. But our sexuality gives us a little glimmer, a little vision, a created version, so to speak, of that eternal exchange of life-giving love. We have the capacity to participate with God in his most stunning act of creation. Imagine, if you will, imagine, if you will, that you had the power with God to create the Milky Way galaxy. Imagine God shared with you that power and you with God created the Milky Way galaxy and you could look up at that galaxy and say, I did that with God. Would that not be awesome? Would that not be awesome? Imagine if God gave you the power to co-create with him the Himalayas. And you could sit back knowing you did that with God. And like, wow, would that not be awesome? Awesome. My brothers and sisters, we have all been given something more awesome. We have all been given something more awesome. What is more awesome than the Milky Way galaxy? What is more awesome than the Himalayas? You are, and I am, and God, in a stunning, stunning act of generosity, has given us the capacity to co-create with him another human life. Utterly astounding. This painting, my brothers and sisters, is deep theology. It tells a divine story. It tells a story about the innermost mystery of God himself. It tells the story of God's generous, generating love. In fact, what image does the Bible use far more than any other to help us understand God's mystery of love. Marriage. Marriage, by far, is the image the Bible uses more than any other to help us understand the mystery of divine love. From beginning to end, the Bible tells this marital story. The Bible begins with a wedding in an earthly paradise. Throughout the Old Testament, God speaks of his love for his people as the love of a husband for his bride. When Israel is unfaithful to Yahweh, the prophets say what? You have committed adultery. In the New Testament, the love of the eternal bridegroom is literally embodied when the word is made flesh. Skip to the end of the story. The book of Revelation describes heaven how? As a bride prepared for her bridegroom, there's another wedding. This time, not in an earthly paradise, as we begin the story in Genesis, but this time in a heavenly paradise, there's another wedding. Who gets married in heaven? Christ and the church. 
Let me quote to you from someone you're very familiar with here at Asbury, Dennis Kinlaw, anyone? When the Bible speaks of the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband, the human story that began with a wedding comes to its end. The wedding in the Garden of Eden and every other wedding in human history prefigured this end, a royal wedding, the one in which the father gives a bride to his son. This means, Kinlaw concludes, this means that God designed marriage to teach human creatures what human history is really all about. This painting if we read its language, if we enter into this mystery, and remember, Paul will tell us in Ephesians chapter 5, and this is what we'll spend more time reflecting on tomorrow. In Ephesians 5, Paul will tell us that this painting is a great mystery. A great mystery that refers to Christ and the church. When we understand these two bookends of the Bible, that the Bible begins with this marriage in an earthly paradise and it ends with another marriage in a heavenly paradise. When we look to these two bookends, we discover the key for understanding all that lies between. Here's the whole Bible in five words. Are you ready? God wants to marry us. inside. We all feel it. We're all looking for something. Turn on the radio and you will hear this cry of the heart in the words of the prophet Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> Everybody's got a hungry heart. Everybody's got a hungry heart. What is that hunger? What is that ache? Remember the supreme song that went like this? I got this burden Yearning, yearning, feeling inside me, oh, deep inside me, and it hurts so bad. What is that burning yearning? It has a name. The fathers of the church, borrowing from the Greek culture they were evangelizing, borrowed this term from the Greeks. And they brought it into the early Christian theology, the vision of the church. The word that describes that ache, anybody know what it is? Eros. E-R-O-S. What English word do we get from that Greek word eros? Erotic. Tragically, in our post-sexual revolution pornographic world, the word erotic has become terribly twisted up and distorted. In the beginning, Jesus tells us, it was not so. In the beginning, there was no distortion. In the beginning, there was no hardness of heart. In the beginning, there was no selfish, lustful desire. Let's use another Greek word, agape. This word refers to divine sacrificial love. In the beginning, 
There was no conflict. There was no division between Eros and Agape. In the beginning, Eros was infused with Agape. How do we know this? How do we know that in the beginning, they experienced sexual desire as the desire to love in the image of God? How do we know this? How do we know they experienced sexual desire as the call to be a sacrificial gift for the other? How do we know this? Back to our painting. They were naked and felt no shame. Nakedness without shame indicates the very sentiment of their desire was nothing but to love in the image of God. But something went wrong. How and why? Back to the enemy. If this is a painting that points to God's eternal plan to marry us, that's exactly what scripture teaches us. God wanted this eternal marital plan to be so plain to us, so obvious to us, that he stamped an image of it right in our bodies by making us male and female and calling the two to become one flesh. This is a theology, this painting. This painting, when we look at it with purity of heart, what will we see? Blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. Those with purity of heart can look at the male body and the female body and see the mystery of God revealed, the call to holy communion, the call to generous, generating love. Guys, have you ever wondered standing there in the shower? Why? Oh, God. Why'd you make me this way? Am I the only guy who's asked this question? <laughs> Ladies, don't laugh too hard. Your body doesn't make sense by itself either, right? Standing alone, a man alone, makes no sense to himself. A woman alone makes no sense to herself. Two men still make no sense to themselves. Two women still make no sense to themselves. Only in light of the beauty and mystery of the sexual difference do we see the call to image God's generous, generating Is this said to wag a finger at anybody or condemn anyone? Did Christ come to condemn? No, he came to save. My brothers and sisters, it is okay that we are sexually broken because there's a remedy. But it is not okay to call our sexual brokenness health. Are you following me? Christ came in the flesh to redeem our flesh. He took on human sexuality to redeem our sexuality. He came as a man born of a woman to redeem male and female together. He entered a family to redeem the family. But how did it go wrong? Why did it go wrong? If this is an icon of heaven... If this is a painting that points us to our eternal destiny, the marriage supper of the Lamb, the marriage feast of the Lamb, think about it. Why does Jesus say in the resurrection we're no longer given in marriage? 
What is this? This is a sign meant to point us to heaven. You no longer need a sign to point you to heaven when you are in heaven. This painting is meant to be an icon that points us to the eternal mystery. I like to say it this way. I like to say God gave us eros, that, that, that hunger, that ache, that longing for love and union. He gave it to us to be like the fuel of a rocket that is meant to launch us to infinity and beyond. But what would happen, what would happen if those rocket engines became inverted? No longer pointing us to the stars, but pointing us back on ourselves. Set that rocket off and what's, what's going to happen? A massive blast of self-destruction. How many of us in our own lives can attest to this experience? We go looking for happiness. We go looking for love. We go looking to fulfill that hunger. And it all backfires on us. It's because our rocket engines are pointed in the wrong direction. How does the enemy feel about this painting? He hates it with all his diabolic fury because he has one goal, one aim, to keep us from our destiny, to keep us from that heavenly marriage. And this is the main clue God has given us to point us to that heavenly marriage. And so the enemy aims all his diabolic fury right here. And here's what happened to this painting with original sin. It became terribly twisted up and distorted. And here is the classic mistake of spiritual people. Spiritual people encounter this painting in its crumpled up form, and what does it look like? Trash. So what do we think the solution is? Throw it away. And a lot of us grow up thinking something like this. Spirit good, body bad. And oftentimes this is taught in the name of Christianity. Oftentimes, this is taught in the name of the New Testament and Paul's letters. But it is a tragic, skewed understanding of what Paul is saying. When Paul says, live by the Spirit, not by the flesh, he's not saying, reject your body. He's saying, open your body to the indwelling of the Spirit. Yes, because if the spirit of him who raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, then that same spirit will give life to your mortal body also. To live by the spirit does not mean to reject the flesh. It means to open the flesh to the indwelling of the spirit. Do you not know that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit? Do you not know that your body is holy? Do you not know, Paul says, that those parts of your body that you think are less honorable, those are the parts of the body that deserve all the greater honor because God has bestowed on these parts of the body, Paul tells us, the greater glory, the greater glory. Why is there a greater glory bestowed on these parts of our bodies than any other? What are we talking about, our elbows? Our kneecaps? Why? Is there a greater honor and glory bestowed by God on the parts of the body that distinguish male and female than any other part of the body? 
Because these are the parts of the body that reveal his mystery of holy communion. Holy, life-giving love. My brothers and sisters, the call to holiness is inscribed by God right in our bodies. The call to love as Jesus loves, that's the whole gospel in a nutshell, right? Love one another as I have loved you. How did Jesus love us? This is my given for. Do you know what the fathers of the church called this? Augustine of Hippo described this as the marriage bed of the cross. The marriage bed of the cross. Augustine of Hippo said, here on this marriage bed, Christ consummated his marriage with his bride. The eternal marriage was consummated here, where Christ said to his bride, this is my body given for you. No wonder the enemy hates our sexuality. Two men in the 20th century, both very prominent global figures, reached into this trash can and pulled this out and started saying to the modern world, you mustn't throw this away. One man's name was Hugh Hefner, founder of Playboy magazine and one of the main architects of the sexual revolution. He said, I started Playboy magazine as my personal response to the hurt and hypocrisy of Puritanism in my Christian upbringing. Let me ask you all a question. How many of you are raised in a Christian home? Can I see a show of hands? How many of you would say that in your Christian upbringing there is open, honest, normal, healthy conversation about God's glorious, beautiful, wonderful plan for erotic desire? Please raise your hand. One, two, three, four. My brothers and sisters, the rest of us, 98% of us, myself included, we were raised on what I call the starvation diet gospel. <laughs> we have this fundamental hunger, this fundamental yearning for love. The fathers of the church called it the kapax dei, this capacity for God, that yearning, that ache, that cry of the heart is a yearning for the infinite. It's a yearning for the eternal embrace. It's a yearning for the marriage of the lamb but we have been fed next to nothing. We've been given a list of rules to follow, and we've been told to repress all those desires because they're only going to get you in trouble. That is not the gospel. That is not Christianity. Christianity is an invitation to a feast. Christianity is an invitation to all those who are hungry to come, come, come to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Christianity is an invitation to everyone who thirsts, come to living water. But when we are not given that invitation, or put it this way, when nobody connects the dots between that invitation and that cry of my heart, which I feel in my bones, and yes, I feel it in my genitalia. When nobody connects the dots, and when this is seen as nothing but dirty and distorted and something to throw away, well, then we are very susceptible 
to what I call the fast food gospel, which is the sexual revolution's promise of immediate gratification for the hunger. Was Hugh Hefner right to tell the world we shouldn't throw this away? On this point, he was right. But where was he wrong and dreadfully wrong? He left it just like this in its crumpled up form. And he started saying to the modern world, hey, don't you want to take a look at this? Don't you want to look at this? Don't you want to look at this? And because 98% of us were raised on the starvation diet, when Hugh Hefner started showing us the greasy chicken nuggets, we said, yeah, I'm hungry. Give me some of that. And guess what? The chicken nuggets taste good going down because we're hungry. I don't know about you, but if the only two choices for that ache and cry in my heart is starvation over here and just follow the rules or, or fast food, I'm going for the nuggets. If the contest is between the starvation diet and the fast food, who wins? Fast food, hands down. But remember I said there were two people who pulled this out of the trash can in the modern world. Both very prominent global figures and I find this from a historical perspective absolutely fascinating. Right at the same time Hugh Hefner started Playboy magazine, a young Polish priest, theologian, and philosopher named Karol Wojtyła, who some 25 years later would be known to the world as John Paul II, also pulled this out of the trash can and started telling the modern world, you mustn't throw this away. But he did something Hugh Hefner didn't do by reflecting deeply and profoundly on God's word, the very word that was proclaimed to us this morning about God's original plan for man and woman. In the beginning, it was not so. In other words, in the beginning, it was not twisted up. In the beginning, we didn't have this hardness of heart. Moses allowed you to divorce your wives because of this hardness of heart you have. Moses couldn't fix it. Christ can and he does. And Paul calls it in Romans chapter 8, the redemption of our bodies. And so this young Polish priest, reflecting deeply on God's word, started uncrumpling for the modern world this original, beautiful, wonderful plan of God for man and woman. And started saying to the whole world, come, come, come behold who you really are. Come discover how beautiful you really are. Come rediscover what it means that you are a man or a woman made in the image and likeness of God. And he started inviting this world to this feast. My brothers and sisters, if all we have to tell the modern world when it shoves this in our face is, is to get that out, that's dirty, that's, that's ugly, that's foul, you're pervert. Are we going to gain a hearing? What did Paul do when he evangelized Athens? It's right in the Acts of the Apostles. He studied their what? He studied their idols. See, we all worship something. We all worship something. We worship whatever we think will satisfy our deepest yearning. That's what we worship. And in our world, what's the number one idol? 
Sex. Why is sex the number one idol? Because in the Bible, it's the number one icon. What are icons meant to do? They're meant to lift our hearts to something bigger. They're meant to point us to something more. If we turn to a religious icon, an icon of Christ, and we let that icon lift us to Christ, that icon has done its job. Everybody with me? But if we worship that wood and that paint itself, that icon is now what? An idol. The number one icon in the Bible of the heavenly mystery is this painting, our creation as man and woman, as male and female, and the call of the two to become one flesh. It's an icon. When we lose sight of the fact that it's an icon, as Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1, we no longer worship the creator, we worship the creature. And God gives us up in the lusts of our hearts to all forms of depravity. That's what's going on in the world today, my brothers and sisters. That's what was going on in Athens. Paul went to Athens and he studied their idols. They didn't have photography back then but they did have sculptures. And if the historians are correct, these sculptures that Paul studied were of a pornographic nature. And so Paul marches into Athens and condemns the whole city as a bunch of sexual perverts, right? Listen to what he says. I see you are a very religious people. Now let me tell you the God you're really looking for. We have three choices with our desire, and I close on this thought. We have three choices with our desire, my brothers and sisters. We will either become a stoic, an addict, or, in the Christian sense of the word, a mystic. What does the stoic do with desire? Repress, 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 repress. What does the addict do with desire? Indulge, indulge, indulge. Now, if that desire, if that hunger and thirst is for something infinite, and I take it to something finite, is it going to satisfy? So what do I think I need? More. I go and I get more. Does it satisfy yet? So what do I think I need? I go and I get more. Does it satisfy yet? This is not a life of happiness. This is a life of addiction. But listen to this. Augustine of Hippo again. He says... Those who are lost in their passions are less lost than those who have lost their passions. Why? Post-sexual revolution, in a certain sense, we are less lost than we were before the sexual revolution when the cultural milieu was just repress, repress, repress. Now we're indulging, 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 but in a certain sense, we're closer to the truth. Why? Because we're thirsty. We feel it now. Who came running to Jesus 2,000 years ago? Was it the religious do-gooders? Was it the stoic crowd? Or was it the addict crowd who came running to Jesus? Why? Why do they come running to Jesus first? Because they feel the hunger. Come all of you, come all of you who are hungry, come to me, come to me, come all of you who are thirsty, come to me, come to me, come to me and have life to the full. If we go out into the world 
and show Hugh Hefner and all his followers that this is an icon that points to what the whole world is really looking for, then like 2,000 years ago, we can have a new evangelization that changes the whole world. May the word made flesh be praised now and ever and forever. Amen. Amen. Amen.